we uh, have had several things uh, happen here recently. I want to just bring to your attention, especially those of you who are not members of Second. There are a couple of tape series that are down the bookmark you might want to take a look at. One is during Advent, we, we looked at the word Messiah, which means anointed one, and how that applies to us in our daily life. Uh, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one. That means he's the prophet, priest, and the king. And then we looked at that last title, Lord, on Christmas Eve. And we just put those in a series for you if you want it. If, you, if you know, you're in another church and weren't able to be with us, you're welcome to that. Then after Christmas, we took three major issues. And I thought you might be interested in these, especially I heard several of you comment about the one uh, that uh, discusses uh, how, uh, if God is good, why is there evil? Uh, but there are three basic questions we addressed. Is the Bible really true? If God is good, why is there evil? And is Christ really the only way to heaven? And those are some three common questions I know that were in my head, probably in most of your heads, and maybe in the heads of some of your family and friends. And you might find those useful. So we put those together in a little series, and uh, you'll, you'll find those in the bookmark as well. And, and King is prepared for you if, if a number of you come today. Then uh, this past weekend, uh, we had a very interesting conference. We had two speakers, one a professor uh, of uh, apologetics, a resident scholar at Covenant Theological Seminary, Dr. Jerem Bars, and then a pastor from uh, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Briarwood Presbyterian Church, Dr. Harry Reeder. And they spoke on how to put together a world and life view and discuss what is a Christian world and life view. And uh, all those tapes are available. I think you can get all of them uh, Friday noon, Friday night, Saturday morning, uh, all day Sunday, about 10 talks there for 20 bucks. So those are available down there. But let me suggest, I asked them to package especially two talks, the two Saturday morning talks, because both Dr. Bars and Dr. Reeder summarized from a philosophical point of view from the seminary and from a practical, uh, you know, rubber meets the road point of view uh, uh, from the pastoral perspective. Both of them uh, summarized this thing beautifully on Saturday morning. I've asked them to... to uh, Put those together separately for you if you want them. So they should be down there. I think it's six bucks for two tapes or two CDs, whatever. So they're not expensive. But if you'd like to know what a Christian world and life view is or what any world and life uh, view is, uh, this would be the simplest way to get it. Uh, as usual, those who are the wisest are those who have a lot of facts, but they're able to simplify it for other people. I've always said probably the brightest teacher you ever had was in the first grade. You know, I've always been fascinated that people could actually teach someone how to read. You know, that's an amazing thing. Uh, so uh, I felt that Dr. Bars did that for us, a very uh, knowledgeable person who really put it on the lower shelf for all of us, to explain what modernism is, what postmodernism is, what the distinctives of American postmodernism is, what the implications of it are in our culture, and, and what Jesus has to say about it and do about it. So you might be interested in those. Um, uh, I don't make a thing off of them. <laughs> I'm just telling you because I want you to benefit from those talks. Uh, if uh, you wish. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation. <clears throat> We're going to look at two chapters this morning, so we've got a lot of material to cover, and I'm going to try to just summarize it, condense it, then we're going to talk about its implications. <clears throat> now, if we can review for just a moment, <clears throat> excuse me, while you're turning to chapter 8, remember that John went into heaven, or rather he had a vision of the heaven opening up <clears throat> in chapters 4 and 5, and what he saw there was amidst all the chaos that's been described in chapters 2 and 3 among the churches, God is on the throne. And his elders surround him, his angels surround him, 
there are fireworks up there, thunder and lightning, and, and God is completely in charge. That's a vision that John had in, in Revelation 4 and 5. That's so important for us to keep remembering. God is in charge. And then as we looked at who's in charge of history, who's controlling all the chaos that we're living in, and you know that the people to whom John was writing were living in all kinds of chaos. They were being persecuted as Christians, and there were, there were earthquakes and other things going on during the first century that historians tell us about. They had all kinds of terrors that were going on. What's the meaning of all this? And then we, we saw that there's a scroll that contains the decrees of God and the scope of history. And so if we want to know the meaning of history, we have to open that scroll and find out what's inside. And so in heaven, John heard someone say, uh, you know, who is, oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> You're a good man. Boy, the good things are going to happen to you today. You know that? <laughs> just, just wait. You don't need to read your horoscope. I'm just telling you. <clears throat> but John heard someone say, who's worthy to open the scroll and open all of its seals? And someone said, nobody. And he started to weep because he wanted to know the meaning of history. And then the Lamb was the one who was worthy. He took the scroll and began to open its seals. So what we saw in chapters uh, 6 especially were the opening of those seals and the opening of history. And what did we find out? That history has been sealed in certain ways and God has ordered it in certain ways that all of the difficulties and persecutions and trials and tribulations that we are under, God is in charge of those. He has, in fact, ordered those. He's not the cause of evil, but He's ruling over all of it and directing all of it, and nothing can happen without His permissive decree. Nothing. So even the persecutions we experience are, are under the direction of God. We saw that clearly in the language, in the Greek language that was in uh, chapters uh, 6 in particular. So then we, we, and we see this increasing intensity as history rolls on, as greater and greater things are happening that are difficult, natural evils that are really kind of scary. And we ask the question, why shouldn't we be terrorized? We got to chapter 7. It's one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. A couple of things are happening. Number one, the church militant, which is here on the earth, that's the church militant. We're at war. The church militant has been sealed. That is, that God has put a mark on you. He knows who you are. He knows who are His, says Paul in his letter to Timothy. So God knows His people. He has sealed you. Nothing is going to wipe you away in the flood of tribulation and trial. Now, you may get killed in this earth, but you're sealed in His hand. Nothing eternally can happen to you uh, that is destructive to you. That's very, very encouraging. So we saw that God's people on this earth are sealed. Now, some, we have noticed in our studies and comparing different approaches to Revelation, want to say that the church is raptured in chapter 4 and they don't face any of this. These are all things that are happening on the earth with the church in heaven. And, of course, we all desire to escape tribulation and escape trial. But what we've seen as we've studied it carefully, God is not saying that you're not going to be on the earth when tribulation comes. That would be a silly message to God's people in the first century. They were facing trial, tribulation, persecution. All the things that we're reading about were happening to them. This is not something in the future. It was for the now. So it would be very silly to say that the church is going to be raptured. They would be saying, well, we must not be the church. That's all I can figure. So what we see is God is not saying, I'm going to take you out of the, out of the tribulation so you have no tribulation. What He's saying is, I'm going to keep you in the tribulation. So yes, you'll be in the tribulation, but I'll keep you. 
So why should God take us around the storm when by His dignity and power He can take us through it instead? He's going to demonstrate His power in keeping a people through a mighty storm. So that's what we saw in Revelation 7. It's the glory of God that is demonstrated in all of His judgments and all of the powerful things that happen on the earth is going to further glorify Himself by keeping His, his sons and keeping them safe. That's what we saw in, in, in the first part of chapter 7. Then John was able to see what's going on in heaven as well. So he had a view of what's happening with the church militant on the earth, and then he had a view of what's happening with the church triumphant. That's the church in heaven. Not yet glorified completely, not yet with their renewed bodies, but we have seen that those who go into heaven go there spiritually. One of the tragedies of death is that our spirit is separated from our body. We were not meant to be separated. And so, of course, all of heaven is saying, how long, O oh Lord? We want to be reunited with our bodies. We want to be like we were made in the, in the Garden of Eden. We want to be made in the image of God with bodies, with hands and feet and, and so on. But the spirits go into heaven and they're robed there, aren't they? And what are they robed with? White robes. And how are they white? All the guilt and all the sin and all the shame that these men have ever done has been completely washed away. How? By the blood of the Lamb. That red blood is a cleansing agent. And these men, who are knuckleheads just like ourselves, are sitting there in heaven looking, looking cool. Like there's no sin, no mistake, no errors, never had done anything wrong. They're clothed in, in white garments by the blood of the Lamb. Their garments have been made white. So we've seen through John's vision, how God is protecting His people here. He's going to get them into heaven, and not only will they be safe, but they'll be satisfied. And what you saw at the end of chapter 7 was this incredible party. You've never put on a party like this one, I guarantee you. A party where everybody was completely awestruck, completely satisfied, full of joy, and the angels were looking on and singing about us guys. Because they could hardly believe that people who wore the dirty robes and did so many rotten, dirty, ugly things in life are sitting up there like saints with their white robes on. And all of heaven is singing, rejoicing at the church triumphant because the church triumphant is bearing the glory of God and reflecting His glory and His holiness. It's a marvelous sight. That's what we saw in Revelation 7. So Revelation 6 we see God's in charge of all this, even the ugly, terrible things that are happening to you. He's in charge of this, but He sealed you, and you're going to get home. Even if, it's, if uh, you die before Jesus Christ comes back, you'll go home in your spirit, and you'll be clothed with the white garments, and it'll be a joyful experience. So now that's what we saw in Revelation chapter 7. Now we want to come back to 8. And you remember that these seals were being opened as history was being disclosed. And then in 8.1, what you see is the seventh seal. And I just want us to look at that one verse for a moment. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. <laughs> After all these judgments and all this noise and all this fireworks, it doesn't seem a little odd. We get to the final conclusion, the seventh seal, the end of God's judgments. It's quiet. Uh, some of you may have heard um, the choral intro, you know, God is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. 
Keep silence. Keep silence before Him. Well, if you look in the Old Testament, uh, you, in these, these passages here, you will see that's where it comes from. God is great in His judgments and His glory and His might and His power, so shut up. <laughs> that's what it says. And be quiet. And wait upon the Lord. And behold Him. Uh, someone was telling me the other day, we were, you know, we have liturgy or worship planning meetings every week. And uh, someone said, you know, we don't use silence enough in our worship service. And they're exactly right. We're Americans. You know, we've got to be on the move. Something's got to be happening. You know, and those of you who have been in the radio and TV business, what's the worst thing that can happen to your station? Silence. Because <laughs> yeah, everybody goes, huh? What? Huh? Well, they must be out of work. You turn it, you know. And that's the same way they think about worship service. Well, if there's silence, you must be out of work, you know. So they start thinking about their golf grip. You know, they're out of there uh, mentally. But silence is a gift from God. And it comes from God Himself. So look at the contrast here. You get up to these six seals are increasing in their intensity and their noise level, and all of a sudden, hush, quiet before God. And what it really says is the big event is just ready to happen. Now, before it happens, which would be the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we'll see especially in chapter 19 of Revelation, before that happens, we begin to get another sequence. Remember we said... John is not going in chronological order, and it's quite obvious because you'll see these patterns being repetitive. So it's like the waves of an ocean going on the shore. They come, come over, recede, come back again, and here he's coming back again. You have silence, and now at the end of that 30 minutes, you're expecting the grand denouement, and rather than that, we recycle. Now, when we recycle, we're going to learn some new things. That's the beauty about Revelation. That's the reason it's not boring. Because, yeah, you cycle, but you're cycling up this way like a spiral staircase. And God is going to increase the intensity and teach us some new things at every level. At every, every, you get from the first floor to the second floor to the third floor. You feel like you're going around in circles, but you're not. You're going up. And that's exactly what's happening in Revelation. So let's look now at, at verses 2 uh, through... Uh, let's, let's read through the 8th chapter and then we'll pick up with the ninth. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. Let's stop right there. First thing I want us to notice in verses 2 through 5, God hears our groanings and He answers us. That's what's going on here. Did you see in these verses that He has the prayers of the saints uh, in verse 3? Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. So the prayers of the saints are coming before the throne. What prayers? Well, turn back to 6.10. And you see what prayers we're talking about. It's chapter 6, verse 10, when all the persecution is taking place and the martyrs are now in heaven watching that persecution, having known they experienced it themselves, 
They're crying out before God in verse 10. They call down in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? So these are the saints in heaven who are calling for uh, God to avenge Himself and to avenge His saints on behalf of not only of themselves, but those who are still on the earth. So all of the church is crying out, God, how long are you going to go put up with this stuff? You know, we're sick and tired of it. We assume you are too. So the church has always been calling upon Him. And what John is seeing is that although you, didn't, you weren't able to interpret it without special revelation, namely the Bible, when you're given the Bible and God reveals revelation, He gives us a revelation, He's showing us what's happening behind the curtain. He's showing us what's happening behind the scenes. He's showing us what the one in charge is actually doing through your personal history. It looks like chaos to you. John's going to straighten a few things out. He's saying, okay, it looks like chaos to you, but let me tell you something. God hears those prayers, and He's going to answer. How do we know He's going to answer? Look what this other angel does. He, uh, in verse 4, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, that's the prayers, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came the thunder, the rumblings, the flashing of lightning, and an earthquake. So he's saying, look, you've got all of heaven calling out to God. He hears those prayers. He gives a little nod to the angel. The angel takes that censer and some fire from the altar of God and throws it down on the earth. Now that's going to explain where the chaos is coming from. Oh. Oh. So it's God who's doing it. Yeah. You know, we had uh, on TV, on CNN, right after the tsunami, one of our Christian leaders in this country was interviewed by CNN and was asked about, you know, why is this all happening? He said, oh, that wasn't God. That was the devil. Uh, folks, the Bible is making something very clear. Yeah, it may have been the devil, but it, behind the curtain, you got God in charge of everything. And what John is saying is all the things that are going on, on the earth have some reason for them. They're not accidental. That's the American secular pragmatic mindset. Oh, it's an accident. In India, it's bad karma. But from a biblical point of view, it's the holy and righteous God at work. That's the reason that if you go back a few decades in your insurance policy, it talked about provisions for acts of God. Oh, yeah. Oh, I see. People used to believe this. Yeah, they used to believe it. That God's in charge of, of the chaos in this world. And that's what John is showing them. That some of what you're seeing and the ultimate reason for what you're seeing is that God is responding to the prayers of His persecuted people. And if you'll look in, uh, in Exodus uh, chapter 3, keep your finger in Revelation, go back to the second book in your Bible and look at what God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Why is it that Moses was being called to go to Pharaoh? Well, God gives us the answer. He says in verse 7, The Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land and so on. He's heard the cries. He's seen the slavery. He's seen the persecution. And he's had it. 
He's responding to it. He's going to deliver them. And we're going to see how does he deliver them? The ten plagues. Awful, no good, horrible things happened in the nation of Egypt because they were persecuting God's people. They were marginalizing them. They were manipulating them. They were using them. Don't think for a minute God doesn't hear those cries. He does. So when you see a Christian or you see a church and you abuse them and you oppress them and you marginalize them and you take their rights away, you better be ready for an earthquake. Now that's what John is seeing in heaven. Keep your finger in Exodus or put something, put a pencil or something. We're coming back. It's going to be an important book for us this morning. So that's the first thing. God hears our groanings and He answers. And he answers, uh, first of all, with seven angels who are given seven trumpets and then another angel who's given a censer. You'll notice that God gives these seven angels their trumpets. Okay? Now, let's stop for a minute and think about what trumpets are for. You know, when I was in college, when I thought of trumpets, I thought of the Tijuana Brass, you know. When you think of trumpets, you may think of something else. Entertainment. Louis Armstrong, you know. Trumpets. Joyful instruments. You can dance to those things, you know. But in the Bible, over and over again, we won't go through and scan it. We don't have time this morning. But if you just look up, get your concordance and look up trumpets. And you'll find that trumpets are always used for warning. And the prophets speak of a trumpet as an instrument of warning. And, of course, we know when Christ comes back, the trumpet will blow. And the final trump will sound. And then Christ will come. The final warning before He comes. So, a preaching, as a matter of fact, is the voice of a trumpet. Because it's to warn people. So, when God gives seven trumpets to be, to be uh, played, it is trumpets of warning. So, God is responding to the prayers of His people and He's giving warnings to those who are oppressing His people and who are committing evils of all sorts. So the trumpet sounds we're going to see here are God's response to the seals. The seals unfolded the persecutions that were happening against the church. Now the trumpets are God's judgment and warning against those who are perpetrating these evils. Okay. Secondly, let's, let's read through the rest of chapter 8. God answers with warning judgments upon the earth. Look at this. Then the seven angels, verse 6, had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Okay, here we've got trumpets one through four. These are judgments that are on the earth. And you'll notice that there are different judgments uh, uh, on different parts of creation. We have the earth, 
the sea, the rivers, and the skies, all affected by God's warning judgments coming on the earth. First is the angel, the first angel, hail, fire, and blood on the earth. And a third of the earth is burned up. Now let's think for just a moment about the meaning of one-third. Why does he say one-third of the earth? Well, it's a warning. That's a pretty severe warning. Take a third of Memphis population and wipe it out. And God says it's just a warning. Uh, now, he didn't wipe out all of Memphis, just a third. And so, when the tsunami comes, you know, it doesn't wipe out all of the Indian Ocean uh, region, but it wipes out 150,000. God is just simply making a statement. Now, we don't know exactly what that statement is, but we know generically from the Scriptures what the principles are involved. When the World Trade Center comes tumbling down, that's a warning. It was a warning to New York City. It was a warning to America. You say, well, you mean he would use people like that? Yes, he would. He did it with the Babylonians to judge Israel, his own people. Certainly, he'll get our attention. So, a third because it's not total destruction. But notice, if you look back in verse 8 of chapter 6, look in 6-8 in the seals. He looks um, with the fourth living creature. Uh, and he says, I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth. So, remember, we're on a spiral staircase. It was a fourth. Now it's a third. You feel something, you feel the pressure starting to build? <laughs> it's going to build until it's, the bowls of wrath come and everything's wiped out. Okay? So the warnings are increasing and intensifying. That's the picture that you get here. It's a drama. And he's saying a third of the earth is burned up. Now notice, you get the blood on the earth. What does this remind you of? The plagues in Egypt. And this is the seventh plague. You can look it up later in Exodus 9.24. We're just seeing that the plagues in Egypt, which were a judgment against Pharaoh and his wickedness and his oppression of God's people, is being played out in history over and over and over again. Okay? Then the second angel comes. Blazing mountain into the sea. Now what we have to remember is that in the period that we're speaking about, of course, we think this was written around 95 A.D. Well, just 16 years before that, Mount Vesuvius had one of its massive explosions. And you have all this volcanic rock going into the sea, fireballs going into the sea. So it was very much in the ancient world about Mount Vesuvius. And what John is seeing here that the third angel is coming to cause mountains to fall into the sea. So he's basically saying, hey, folks, Mount Vesuvius is no accident. There's a mentality. Just as there is intelligent design, and of course, the scientific world is really beginning to be captivated with what seems to be inevitable, that there's intelligent design. They won't call it creation. <laughs> they call it intelligent design. That's an intelligent way to speak of creation. There's also intelligent control. And that's what John is saying. You've got intelligent design and intelligent control. And even the blazing mountain into the sea, where a third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the sea creatures die, a third of the ships are destroyed. Not total destruction, but massive. Once again, this reminds us of the first plague, Exodus 7.20. You can check it out. Then the third angel comes. What's that all about? The rivers turn bitter. And how does that happen? A great star falls from the sky and a third of the waters turn bitter. 
just as in, once again, the first plague. But do you remember this in Exodus 15 where the, the water was bitter and God provided to make it sweet? Once again, showing that, that the very sustenance, you, know, you can go a long time without food, but you can't go very long without water. And when God's judgment comes, He can touch us at the very core of our being. And He can take the fresh waters and make them foul as well. Then the fourth angel comes, we've seen, and the sky is darkened. And so basically, God is withholding light from those who reject Him. And a third of the suns, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, and a third of the, of the day is gone. Amazing. Once again, what does that remind you of? The plague of darkness. The plagues in Egypt against Pharaoh. It's God's judgment against the nations and the kings and the princes and the power of this world who are wicked and who oppress His own people. Now, let's read on and let's look at the next two trumpets. Trumpets 5 and 6 that are woes upon the inhabitants of the earth. And you'll notice a switch here. First four trumpets have to do with God's warning judgments on the earth. Trumpets 5 and 6 and 7 are called great woes. And we're going to see an eagle or, or a vulture. It's the same word in Greek. Uh, that is flying over saying, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Woe to you. It's getting worse. Because now God's judgment not just destroying vegetation and messing and fouling up the waters and messing with the lights in the sky, now it's going to come upon men. It's going to be personalized. Let's, let's read it in uh, verse thir- beginning with verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Now that phrase, to the inhabitants of the earth, always refers to evil, unbelieving men. Okay, so he's, re- he's referring to the, to the world of unbelief, to the inhabitants of the earth. Because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the three other angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or plant any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. You see now what's being said? These woes are coming. Don't bother with the vegetation. Go right for the men, except for those who are marked with a seal that we had seen earlier in chapter 7. See how God's protecting? When the greatest evils come, don't lay a hand on my son, on my daughter. So this is the way it's going. But only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Verse 5. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. Thanks a lot, God. They don't have power to kill me. Just to torture me for five months. What's the meaning of five months? Well, scholars talk about what it means. Nobody really knows. But in Noah's Ark, they were in, in the Ark for 150 days before the waters receded. So you have five months right there. It's, you know, there could be an analogy there in Genesis chapter 7. I mean, you've got to look for wherever you can see Old Testament reference. But they've come specifically to torture the people who have been torturing God's people. Amazing. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. So God won't let them die. They're going to be tortured. 
Golly. Now, this is how God feels. This is what righteous indignation looks like. There's going to be justice. And justice is going to have a lot to do with how people have been treating God's people, including God's people, and how they're treating God's people. Verse 7, the locusts look like horses prepared for battle. These are, guys, these are no ordinary locusts. Put your seatbelt on. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold. And their faces resembled human faces. That's scary. I could think of... Rocky, we could probably think of a few people that uh, could fit that description there. Uh, Their hair was like women's hair. And their teeth were like lion's teeth. It's getting uglier all the time, isn't it? They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions. And in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. The first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. Let's look at this woe for a minute. Inhabitants of the earth are the unbelievers on earth. We've seen that. This fifth angel is these unbelievable-looking locusts. And what, what John has seen and what he's revealing to us is just something that's very, very ugly, very, very scary, and very, very powerful. A star that had fallen. Sounds, uh, as we said earlier, we don't know exactly where evil has come from. It's irrational. If it were rational, it wouldn't be as evil as it is. So we don't know exactly where it came from. All we know in Genesis 3, there's a serpent. The Bible doesn't say where he came from. But you get these hints that it looks as though he could have been an angelic being and fallen. That's very possible. Here you have that kind of statement that could suggest that. And he's given the key to the abyss. Now, this is not the sense in which Satan has the key to the abyss and he opens it up and brings people in. No, he's got the key to the abyss. He opens it up and lets the demons out. So he's got the key, but notice who gives him the key and who gives him the power and who's got control over all this. He's given the key. He didn't come up with the key. And the sun and the sky were darkened. Locusts were given power like scorpions. Locusts were the terror of the agrarian economy in the first century. Locusts could come into a field and swarm in, clean that thing out, swarm right out of there, and they're gone, and ruin your whole year's income. People were terrified by locusts. But these locusts are not after your crops. They're after your head. And they're told, they're told to harm people. This is under God's direction. And they're given power to torture. Men is so bad, men will seek death. And these words Abaddon and Apollyon simply mean destroyer. That's what Satan is. And what John is seeing is that under God's control, there is an intelligent opposition. You have intelligent design, intelligent control. You have intelligent opposition. You have a personal enemy. I'll never forget when I was entering seminary, they tried to screen out the kooks, and they, they didn't do very well because I got through. But they give us a test at the very end, uh, and, you know, some of you have taken it because maybe your psychiatrist was wondering about you too. Um, it's called the Minnesota Multiphasic Inventory, and I won't ask for a show of hands because they'll show you, you, know, you. They thought you were kooky too. So you take this thing, and it, it's, it really shows abnormal psych, and I only was abnormal in about three or four categories. But uh, it's for abnormal psych. And so they, they are looking for paranoia and things like that that some of us struggle with here. And uh, I remember one of the questions was, 
You think the devil's out to get you? Now, how are you going to answer that? You know what they're looking for to see if you're paranoid about, you know, evil forces. But on the other hand, theologically, absolutely the devil's out to get me. So I had to say, yep, think the devil's out to get me. He is out to get me. Why? Jesus says in John 10, this is his very nature. The devil came to steal, to kill, and to destroy Apollyon. But I, said Jesus, have come to give you life and give it to the full. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. So you have this huge contrast between the personal intelligence of the devil. He really is. He really does exist. He really is after you. And he's able to open up the abyss and call some demons to come after you too. Uh, But you're sealed if you're in Christ. And you have life and you have it to the full. So the devil is very powerful. More powerful than you are by, by nature. But not more powerful than the one who lives in you. Once again, we see the same kind of thing with the plague of locusts in Exodus 10. And in Joel 1 and 2, you get the judgment of locusts that are being prophesied and so on. Now let's look at the sixth angel, the four angels at Euphrates. Let's find out what that's all about. Look at verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, do you see once again, the angels are only acting at the direction of God. God's in complete control, intelligent control. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was two hundred million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. That's a mean-looking horse. That's, a, that's bad news. If you see one of those, you're in bad shape. And that's exactly what John is saying. God has this kind of power to inflict agony and death on humankind. And there are moments when He will unleash it. What we see is in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7 uh, that he had power to harm the land and the sea. And he said, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on their foreheads. So once again, we're sealed. So before this destruction comes, God has sealed his people. This is destruction that's going to come upon those who resist him, who displease him, who dishonor him, who disobey him. They're going to be judgments because he's the creator. He made you. He has sovereign rights over your body, over your mind, over your soul. Sovereign, total rights. And when you reject him, you're throwing off the one who has rights over you. And the wages of sin is death. And so God will take out a third of mankind in that judgment. And then we see these two million. What are they? I believe they're legions of demons. So you have the one who's in control of the abyss. He's unleashing all these... Hairy locusts. 
And then you have these horses whose tails are like snakes. Two million of them. So all, all John is saying is it was massive. Uh, 200 million, rather. It was massive. More than anything I've ever seen like, like that ever in my life. So what we have is the trumpets five and six that are woes upon the inhabitants of the earth. Now, I want us to move to our last point in these last 12 minutes. And that is that with all of this going on, God exercising judgments on the face of the earth and explaining to John that he, God, is behind the things that are taking place on earth, you would expect that he would get our attention. And those of us who are following him or trying to follow him, he does get our attention. And in some of our cases, he led us to himself through getting our attention with some painful things in life. And he does that. And that's what he does for the people who are sealed. The pain leads you to repentance and to a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. And with so many of you in this room, with things that you've suffered with, you've told me over and over again, you know, preacher, I didn't enjoy that very much. But I will say this. I got more of Christ out of it through my pain and suffering. Here's what you find with those who are not sealed, those who have not given their lives to Christ, those who are still holding out on Him. Sinful men will ignore God's warnings. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. Look at this. After all this display of His personal judgments, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues, what did they do? They fell down on their faces and asked God for forgiveness. No still did not repent of the work of their hands. Would you just look at that phrase? Still! I mean, how hard-headed can you be, gentlemen? You have had opportunities to study history and to see the work of God through the ages. And you've seen His church grow so that it now is two billion people around the world. And you've seen many acts of history where God has undertaken the cause of His people. And you've seen His mighty power and judgments. And you've seen the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how God has made Him His own Son and has enthroned Him over all the world and He's in charge of everything. And you've had some difficulties happening in your life. i got a question for you. How can you be so hard-headed? That's what He's saying to the earth. And men can be this way. Let me give you an example. This is so interesting to me. After the tsunami took place, I discovered... A really fascinating thing through one of my favorite television networks, Al Jazeera, that what I discovered was that American officials had planted hundreds of atomic bombs in the bottom of the Indian Ocean and caused this thing to happen to take 150,000 lives. I, I didn't know that, did you? I was so glad I tuned in on that day to pick up on that piece of news. And I also understood that we were in cahoots with the Israelis and the Indians to, to do that. When you harden your heart against the obvious sovereignty and lordship of Jesus Christ, you go crazy. You start saying and thinking and doing some of the dumbest things ever seen by the eyes of men. And if you won't believe the truth, it's not that you won't believe anything. No, if you won't believe the truth, you will believe anything. It's unbelievable what you'll believe when you don't believe the truth. And the fact that you believe these idiotic and stupid things is part of God's judgment on your head. You're left open to believe stupidity like that advertisement on Al Jazeera. 
That wasn't an advertisement. That was actually a news broadcast. That's what's happening. Peoples around the world have hardened their heart. And I find it very interesting in discussing things with various religions. Those that are the most wrong are usually the most defensive about their wrong. It's unbelievable. Now, I would hope if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and someone has a little critique for your church or for the church in America or for your country, you can sit and listen and say, you know, I've thought those things myself. And I hope that we can improve these things. And you're right. We believe in Jesus Christ as the perfect one, not us as his perfect ones. But what I've found around the world, and especially with some of the religions around the Indian Ocean Basin, that the more wrong they are, the more hard-headed they are, and the more defensive they are. And they can't face the evils that are in their own midst. That's exactly what God is saying right here to John. John's seeing it. These people who should, you'd think they'd get, have their attention arrested. Don't have it arrested. They get their heads harder. harder. They continue with their idolatry. Look at verse 20. Uh, they did not stop worshiping demons. You say, worshiping demons? Well, I wouldn't do that. First Corinthians, Paul says, basically, that behind the idol worship in Corinth, it was demonic. Now, the idols here he speaks about are idols uh, of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear, or walk. Okay? These are dumb idols, so-called. Think about it. People are worshiping things that cannot hear, cannot see, and cannot move. Great God you've got there, pal. Other people are worshiping gods that just don't exist. At least a stone exists. But people will create all kinds of gods, and here's how they'll go through it. They'll say, well, I could never worship a god like XYZ. And you hear it a lot with the tragedies that go on in our world. Well, I couldn't worship a God that was behind that. Well, maybe you couldn't. Then what are you going to do? Well, I'll worship a God who wouldn't do something like that. Well, that's fine. You can have a God. You can create whatever God you want that fits your little predilections and your desires. The only problem you got is that your God doesn't exist. The God who is reveals Himself in nature and in the Holy Scriptures through the apostles who saw Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and were personally commissioned by Him and were given powers to work signs and miracles to verify their message. That's the real God. And you'd be a whole lot better off if you got to know the God who does exist and get your life in line with the one who actually made you, not the one that you wish made you. You know, when you're growing up as a kid and get really ticked with your parents and you have a good friend and you say, boy, I wish they were my parents. I remember our daughter one time. <laughs> yeah, it was... One of my kids who actually had that thought, who uh, <laughs> walked down the street. We had some neighbors two houses over. We lived on Lookout Mountain. Her name was Penny, just Penny and Ray, delightful neighbors. And Mary was about six years old, and she walked into Penny's kitchen, and she said, Penny, you cook so much better than my mother. Of course, she got everything she wanted to eat that afternoon at Penny's house. You know, we all have those kinds of thoughts. And I remember having those thoughts. Boy, I sure wish that so-and-so were my mom and dad, you know, in my fit of temper. But we're that way too. You want another, you want another father in heaven. You just want to create one that, that you can get along with. Too bad. That would be unholy. And that God doesn't exist. So let's get in tune with the God who does exist. And then they continued their immorality. Look at these, look at these acts. Look familiar? Ring a bell? Murders? Whenever we enter an unjust war, gentlemen, 
Whenever we contribute to an unjust war by our thoughts or by our votes or anything else in the political realm, it's a form of murder. So you have to be very careful when you promote a war. And, you know, so there's been a lot of discussion about the Iraq War. Good. There should always be discussions about wars. And some of us in the 60s were so frustrated with the turmoil and the division in our country over Vietnam. But you know what? I'd rather have a democracy that knows how to discuss good and evil than to have a monarchy where there's no discussion at all. Let's go ahead and have the discussion. Why? Because it's important. Because we don't want to be murderers. And an unjust war is murder. And when your Supreme Court allows babies to be killed inside the wombs of mothers, there's murder. 1.3 million a year. We're up to about 40 million now. American citizens wiped out. Murder. And when we don't have anything to do with it and we just step back, that's murder. It's a form of murder. It's not as bad as committing the abortion ourselves. Some of us in this room have encouraged wives or girlfriends or whatever to have abortions. God forgives sins. But he judges that. He doesn't like that. And there's going to be a response from God on a society that kills its children. And why do we have so many divided homes? Is there any mystery here? If a woman is trained by her own culture and by some of the churches in this city to abort her children, do you think then she'll be real tender with the children that she has that do live? What kind of mothering technique do you think she'll develop? Once she's justified murder, what else do you think she'll justify as a mother? When a man has justified telling his girlfriend to get an abortion, what else will he do with his children that are given to him? Is it any mystery? While family life is all falling apart? We're back to the first century. God sees all this stuff. And people see his judgments. They see cause and effect. They are told that God exists. He doesn't like this. What do they do? Harden their head and do some more of it. Same thing with the magic arts. We, we believe in spirituality. And it's whatever pleases you, whatever kind of floats your boat, you just go do it. Doesn't matter, truth is not important, say 75% of the American population and 85% of those under 30. Doesn't really matter. What matters in spiritual life is that you kind of get some encouragement and begin to build your life together. It's all about you. Magic arts. Sexual immorality. 80% of our college students are sexually active. 80%. Do you think God doesn't notice this? Do you think there'll be no response? Do you think he'll just, oh, this will slip him by. He's got more important things to do. What about thefts? When 70% of the people in the workplace, in your workplace, are saying that at some time or another they have stolen, and probably 70% of this room would represent that story. God forgives sins, but gentlemen, he notices. He takes notice when people continue in these things without repentance. When there's repentance, there's healing. He says, if my people who are called by my name will pray, humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin. It's wiped clean. No more judgment. Gone. When we repent, these people wouldn't repent. They're hard-headed. So guess what? Their sins are not forgiven. It's horrifying. So what? That's the, that's the last question we want to ask ourselves very quickly. So what? What does all this mean to me? First, no longer think of natural evil as senseless or impersonal. Everything that happens in this world is under intelligent control. Now, we don't always know what the message is. You know, if Mount St. Helens blows up again, I don't know exactly what that means, but I do know this. God's responding. He's in charge of this earth. He's got a plan. And He may be judging something. I don't know what it is. But what am I going to do? When troubles come, I'm going to humble myself and repent. And if I'm near Mount, Mount St. Helens, 
And the thing blows us. God, you got my attention. And what do I need to learn from this? I need to learn to be more circumspect. Watch my life. You know, I dodged a bullet. So what was that all about? Well, I don't know for sure, but I know in general I need to humble myself before the Lord and repent. And God is blessing me this way because life is full of joy when I repent. Because what happens when I repent? I turn from my wicked ways. I turn to Him. So it's not sad. It's not low self-esteem. It's not misery and shame. It's freedom. So I turn from that which has bound me uh, and I turn to Him. When troubles come, I will not fear. If He takes my right arm, my left arm, both my legs, takes my life, I'm not afraid. He sealed me. I'm headed for a better place. And when I get there, I'll say, what took you so long, Wilson, you knucklehead? You should have took, taken some more risks so you could die sooner. I'm not going to be afraid. So yes, I will humble myself and repent, but not out of fear, but out of worship, out of fear of the Lord, not out of fear for my life. And then lastly, when persecution comes, pray and watch out. <laughs> when, when you're persecuted, pray and then move over a little bit. <laughs> Lightning may come. Not on you, but on your surroundings. If you are being persecuted, you pray. And I would just suggest in your journal, I've done this a few times, and I've just prayed about something and I've recorded the prayer, and then I just watch out. I don't know what God's going to do. He may, he may wait until the last day to clean it all up, and that's fine. But oftentimes you'll see little interventions in history, in your personal history. And you just keep track of what God is doing around you. It's not because it's all about you and whether people treat you right or not. I'm talking about evil that is around you, that is being perpetrated against you. You just pray and you watch the hand of the Lord work. What you don't do is try to take the place of God yourself and wreak vengeance on all those around you. That's what every other religion in this world is doing. They're wreaking vengeance on those around them because all they've got is what's in this life. That's not all that we've got. We've got the next life. So we can wait. Pray and wait. Watch out. Let's pray to God. Father, thank You for Your awesome power. Thank You that Your power is being exerted ultimately to glorify Yourself who is alone worthy of all praise. Secondarily, You are exercising Your great power to vindicate a a people You love. That's ourselves, all of us here, who put our trust in Christ. We have Your seal on our foreheads. We're protected by You through all the chaos. We thank You for that. For any here, Lord, who have not been sealed, we pray that today they will open their hearts and realize that You're a God of holiness and justice and wrath and You are a God of love and grace and forgiveness. And You will include people who come to You and trust You and follow You. May we all behold Christ today. May we behold You as the intelligent designer and the intelligent controller and the great... God of all creation and all of history, whom we worship and praise and serve through Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.